arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. just heard the voice of the great Harry Houdini, gifted in the art of prestidigitation. Harry Houdini was a magician, and Jones has learned that Clarence Moody is an amateur magician, which leads to his picking of the lock on Professor Thayer's filing cabinet to get a copy of a test. And someone picked the lock on the drawer containing the murder weapon, Joe Sabota's knife. Coco after a visit from a mobster and a shootout and death, is in police custody. The finale brings the suspects together and the murderer is shot dead. Here is episode five in the end of the Club Max Murder by Robert P. Fitton. The Club Max Murder, chapter 24. After he gave his statement to the police, Jones's cell phone sounded. He watched the cruiser with Coco in the back seat move slowly through Club Max's parking lot. Locke's huge car was attached to the tow truck cable across the lot. Jones. Matthias, this is Travis. Travis, you're not going to believe what just happened. You sound upset. Are you all right? Not good. I just left Joe and his parents. They have him heavily sedated. This is killing me. Joe is innocent. Devastating. I just talked to Joe's roommate, Travis, Clarence Moody. And I think he's involved in this because Mrs. O'Toole told me and I verified that he worked for a pizza joint near Quintel. Not exactly definitive. When he cracked my filing cabinet, that was definitive and then they nailed him for it. Right. Wait, wait. What do you mean he cracked your filing cabinet? Well, he picked the lock. Never put that together. Or maybe find Moody first. Thank you, Travis. I'll call you. He returned inside. Lark sat at the bar and held a stubby glass. Look, Lark, why don't we head over to the ER? I assure you, Matthias, 
as Jones lifted the drink to his nose. That's straight scotch. Nothing like a good stiff one to snap you out of it. Listen, I'll take you back to Hamilton. Perhaps the police need my assistance. They said the man I hit was a fugitive from the law. He's been on the lam for six years. Oh, I'll need a lawyer. Too bad Sid is in Romania. Romania? Undercover work, old boy. Lark, I get the impression that nobody is pressing charges. Then again, I did take out a mobster. Right, my Jeep is in the parking lot. All the way from Club Max, Lark held on to the scotch and water. Jones helped him up the porch stairs. Lark, aren't you going to finish that drink? I know I'm going to have problems with my insurance company. No doubt you will, said Jones with a smile. Where's Flo? I wouldn't disturb her super senior yoga class at the church parish hall. Lark, you were almost killed. A man was killed. Well, he was wanted by the police. Okay, let me get you inside, said Jones, trying to take the drink, but Lark held firm. And they're already threatening to cancel my new policy. Jones pulled open the storm door. Do you have a key, Lark? Oh, I never lock my house. You what? Jones stared at the empty glass. Well, that was quick. Well, I'm sure you'll get through all of this. They said if I went to driving school for six weeks, perhaps I'd be reinstated. Ah, who said there isn't divine intervention? Jones pulled into the gymnasium parking lot. Woozy would be in his office in half an hour. His cell vibrated on the other seat. Matthias, it's Kevin. Kevin, did Herbert release Joe Sabota? asked Jones. No, he didn't. What about Coco? he asked as he exited the Jeep. No, on that account also. How can he hold them both? Herbert can do whatever he wants, you know that. Plus, I think Coco killed Quintel and he's covering it up. Jones approached the gym door. I think neither of them had anything to do with Quintel's death. Then who did, Matthias? Resnick or Moody? The kid can pick locks, Kevin. Travis Thayer caught him stealing an exam last semester from a filing cabinet where he picked the lock. Well, that's convenient. Moody being next to the lock drawer and him working for that pizza place. Look, we'll bring him in for questioning. You knew about the pizza place? Sure, he's on all the news networks. High-profile attorney. Well, he's not just any attorney. He's Coco Stefani's attorney now. And he's flying to Manchester tomorrow from Miami. He has Coco on a code of silence. He's not saying a word. Why would Coco bring in a lawyer like Crossman if he wasn't guilty? Because of Herbert Lane. He'll frame Coco. Well, show me that he didn't kill Quintel. Eventually, I will. One more thing, Kevin. You're making a big mistake listening to Herbert Lane. Jones hung up the phone and stuffed it in his pants pocket. When he opened the gym door, the heavy door shut behind him as he entered the locker room. The fluorescent light from his office shined into the locker room. As he rounded the corner, he worried about Lark not receiving medical attention. Coco's accountant, Bernie Newman, his rounded black-rimmed glasses reflecting the overhead lights, looked up. Good afternoon, Jones. Mr. Newman, I think you know why I'm here. The bank ledgers, you uh, do have them in your possession. 
They're in the Jeep. I can get them so you can be on your way. Oh, no, no. I kind of like your coach's office. Chair was a little wobbly, but I fixed it. Okay, I'll go to the Jeep and get them. They're right out front. I'll be right back. Jones knew he would be arrested if Phillips, or even Strickland, was aware that he had the ledgers. And worse now, he was handing them over to the accountant of a man being held for murder. Jones finished a hamburger and fries from the Colonial House takeout. The locker room was dark, except for the office lighting hitting the first few lockers. Somebody had called Woozy, postponing his meeting until tomorrow morning. Don't you want something more substantial than chicken and rice broth? This is substantial, Jones. I think you'll be very interested in what I found on page 360. 360. No carpus. No carpus is loosely associated with the South End Grill along the water, south of Boston. Carpus signed five checks to Quintel during September alone. Coco thought he wanted to work in Boston, but this is something else. Each check is for $1,000. What does that mean? Newman removed his glasses. Coco told me your player Resnick had somehow linked up with Milt in a bar room. Oh, I don't understand that. It's irrelevant. I say they both had purposes in having Quintel dead. But you just told me Milt wanted Quintel to work in Boston. He placed his glasses back on. Who gives a shit about Boston if you can frame Coco Stefani? So how does Resnick fit into this? Well, he frames Sabota. And both Sabota and Coco are now in jail with Herbert Lane ready to pounce on them. So are we all done? No, we're not all done. I have another hundred pages. Now sit down and relax. Go read a book. Jones closed his eyes as he leaned back in Woozy's chair. Jones felt a tug on his shoulder. The wall clock neared midnight. He slowly opened his eyes. Bernie Newman looked down at him. I found what Daniels told Bruno. Jones sat up straight. Daniels? That bag of wind? Well, that bag of wind figured out that Moody brought the knife over in the proximity of the murder. How do you know that, Bernie? Page 617, line 19. What? No carpet stated a check to Clarence Moody on the day of the murder for $500. Expensive delivery. You better believe it. He's a fool for not using cash, said Jones as they wandered over to the desk. Very good, Jones. Coco always speaks well of you. Perhaps you'd like to come work for us. I'll pass on that, Bernie. Where's the check? Newman pointed to a copy of a ledger line for $500. The check from the South End Grill was made out to C.S. Moody, signed by Mill Carpus, and endorsed on the back by C.S. Moody. Where's Moody? Crossman is going to want to speak with him. And you say Daniels figured this out? Told Bruno that Moody was paid to drop off the knife. But Bernie... We don't even know who killed Quintel. Who cares? He said, folding up the sheets. He placed them in his briefcase. As long as it wasn't Coco, I really don't care. You need a ride, Bernie? My car is in the lot. He shook Jones's hand. You may have saved Coco's ass by getting those reports out. Well, I suppose that's good. It's Moody I'm worried about now. Jones flipped back the locker room lights and closed down his office. We'll locate Moody. We'll find him. Well, don't kill him. Jones, come on. We need to talk to him. If he cooperates, he'll be fine. If Milt pressured the kid, we want to know what happened. Who exactly picked up Sabota's knife? Jones opened the outside door. The parking lot lights reflected on his Jeep and a late model BMW. What if Milt himself did it? 
and he's dead, thanks to that stooge who drove his car into the club. Oh, don't even go there, Bernie. If Mill kill Quintel, we'll find that out, too. We have friends in Boston, Jones. You take care, Jones, and if you have a gun, I'd advise you keeping it near your person. And no discussion of this with the cops, is that clear? Yes, Bernie, that's clear. Chapter 25 Jones and Gallagher climbed the stone steps at the Prince William Police Station. Jones had trouble sleeping after staying up past midnight with Bernie Newman. You look like you've been on a bender, said Gallagher, adjusting his collar. Well, I'm worried about this whole thing. What are you going to say to Coco? Oh, I've got a lot to say to Coco. It's his behavior that brought him to jail, and I intend to address that. Jones nodded his head as his cell phone rang in the lobby of the huge police station. Good morning. Well, I must say that is the most civil greeting you've ever given me, said Daniels. What do you want, Daniels? Moody is missing. Why are you looking for Moody, he asked, thinking Daniels had been eavesdropping again. I think we know the answer to that, Joan. I'm following a lead, and I will find Moody. As far as I'm concerned, using my powers of deduction, I have determined that Moody is guilty of murdering the prostitute. Jones raised his index finger to Gallagher, waiting ahead. Why don't you just let the police handle it? I welcome the challenge. He hung up the phone, and Jones stared at the phone as he moved up to Gallagher. Who was that? Daniels? Oh, the Sherlock Holmes buff. They moved up to Crim behind the main desk. Matthias, Attorney Crossman is waiting for you in the conference room, said Krim. He's waiting for me? That's the word, Matthias. It looks like Coco's finally going down. Well, don't bet on it, Krim. He and Gallagher started up the stairs to the second floor. You know something, said Gallagher. Yes, father. Matthias, don't put yourself in legal jeopardy. I'm already in legal jeopardy, Jim. Oh, dear Lord. Kevin Phillips caught sight of them near the conference room. Well, here comes Coco's other attorney. What does Crossman want with me, Kevin? asked Jones. I have no idea. Herbert has postponed the arraignment. Jones stopped. Why is that? Why don't you ask Crossman? I have no idea about that either. Phillips gave him a look as if he was aware Jones was too loyal to Coco. He raised his brows and headed downstairs. Jones looked at Gallagher, who motioned him inside the conference room. A group of men in high-priced suits and a raven-haired woman in a pale green dress sat down at the end of the table. A man, balding with trimmed gray hair, looked up from his briefcase. Then he stood. I'm Matthias Jones. Excuse me, Reverend, this is a uh, closed meeting. Father, said Gallagher, shaking his hand. Father James Gallagher. Yes, Father, you'll have to leave. Gallagher pointed at the shorter man. Do not, and I repeat, do not drag Matthias into the gutter. Then he faced Jones, still pointing. And don't you get dragged into the gutter. Gallagher turned and his shoes echoed across the hardwood floor. Well, yeah, I can see your friend cares about your well-being. So do I, said Jones. One of the men shut the door and scrambled back to the table. We spent the better part of the night in Massachusetts, apparently and our investigation is incomplete, Mill Carpus was running a one-man vengeance attack on Coco. He simply wanted what Coco has here in Prince William. Who killed Gina Quintel? asked Jones. Crossman looked him in the eye. Thought you might be able to tell me. Moody had the means to get that knife to Covington, and he was there before the murder. 
that's not good. But setting up Joe because he was outed on some stolen test last semester makes no sense. Well, have you spoken with Moody? Jones shook his head. Not since I met him in the cafeteria a few days ago. That idiot Daniels from Covington just called me to say he's trying to track him down. Oh yeah, the Sherlock Holmes guy, said the woman, smiling briefly at Jones. She sounded as if she were from New York City. Yes, I know, Daria. We have people looking for Moody also. Well, as I told Mr. Newman, we can't just assume that Moody killed her. Well, we'll find out what happened. He studied a small folder from his briefcase. Resnick, this kid, he had a hell of a lot of motivation to set up Sabota. Jealousy, guilt, and guilt from his father's pressure. And he was with Mill Carpus in some bar room down in Boston. Exactly. How he linked up with Carpus, we can figure out after. Carpus is paying Gina probably to set up Sabota. He really didn't need Resnick. Jones sat back in the chair. Oh, yes, he did. Give Resnick the means to kill Quintel and set up Joe Sabota. And at the same time, with Coco making his rounds to pick up his cut from Gina, he could have been blamed. That left Carpus off the hook. Coco gets nailed for Quintel's murder, and then Milt comes back into town. Oh, you're very good, Jones, very good. If I was good, I would have figured this out a long time ago. Milk Carpus wrote the check to Moody. What a dummy. Now, he, he liked being big man, and he never was. But that's not the problem here. Resnick would have known about Sabota's knife, and he knew Moody could get it. And Moody liked spending money. He didn't know why he was dropping off the knife. Yeah, nor did he care, said Jones. Where can we find Resnick? He's probably at the college in class now. I can get his schedule. What are you going to do to him? I'm not going to do anything to him. We'll have the police bring him in for questioning. Jones nodded. I just have a bad feeling about Daniels being in the mix of all this. I understand that, he said, lifting his cell phone. Hello. Yeah, Jones is ready to see Coco. Jones and Crossman stood. Both men shook hands. What happens to Coco now? You don't understand. Lane will release him. No, I do understand. Well, I'm sure you do, he turned to the dark-haired woman. Daria, why don't you bring Mr. Jones here down to meet Mr. Stefani? Yes, Walter, it'd be my pleasure. She was almost as tall as Jones, and she wore a subtle perfume. After you, Mr. Jones? They rounded the table and stepped into the corridor. Prince William is a long way from New York. They moved toward the locked cells to the right. Believe it or not, I've never been to New York. The police at the door unlocked the outer door, Daria flipped him a glossy card with her photo in the upper corner. Well, if you ever venture into the big city, Mr. Jones, give me a call. I'll show you New York. Jones looked at the silhouetted skyline in Manhattan on the other corner of the card. I could use a vacation. Ah, well, the offer is open. A policeman stood by the cell door ahead. Father Gallagher stepped from the cell. Matthias, ma'am, I'll be in the cafeteria. Coco, said Daria as Gallagher quickly moved out. Coco turned from the window, and he smiled when he saw Jones. Heard you had a long night there, Jonesy. Uh, the homily is over. Father has left for the cafeteria. Jonesy, said Daria, mouthing his name. I'll give you two some time here. Thank you. I'll see you on the way out, said Jones. Good. Coco watched Daria return down the corridor. What, are you making time with my attorney, Jonesy? She invited me to New York. Jonesy, seriously, 
I owe you my life, man. Oh, Newman uncovered it. No, no. If you hadn't got those sheets to burn you, I would have been screwed. I'd like to pound that kid, Moody. Moody brought the knife over for money. Yeah, Milt Carpus talked him into it. No, Milt was a part of it. I think he was the instigator. I think he did this on the fly. By chance, he met Resnick in some Boston bar. That's when he saw an opportunity to go after you. I agree. Wasn't a bad plan if he had just stuck with cash. Milt never was very bright. Crossman said Lane will release you. You bet your ass he will. If he doesn't, he'll go down, believe me. Just what did he do? Look, Jonesy, face it, there are just some things you're never going to know. Chapter 26 Jones turned on the radio. A loud and annoying rap song shook the speakers as he and Coco headed in the jeep toward the river in Club Max. What are you listening to that crap for, Jonesy? Jones pushed a channel button. The college station played classical music. I'll change it. No, no, I like classical. Keep it on there. You? Yeah, me. I like opera, too. Well, I didn't know that. I only let people see what I want them to see. The music ended. Jones looked out the window, but was confounded when no further music came on the air. He fiddled with the dial. You know, Nigel should really give extra money to the campus radio station so they could stay on the air. You're talking about a college who cheaped out and kept Larson as coach for 40 years. Jones spotted Club Max ahead. Men were already working on the hole in the side of the building. Well, don't knock Lark. He took care of Milk Carpus for you. That guy's a terror on the road, but you're right. He deserves some kind of award. Award? How about revoking his license? Seriously, if he didn't come barrel-assing into my office, Milt would have taken us both out. Jones stopped next to a cube construction truck. He fiddled with the radio. Why have a campus station if you can't broadcast? You coming inside, Jonesy? No, I have to get back. Suit yourself. And again, thanks, Jonesy. I won't forget it. He shook Jones's hand and stepped into the parking lot. He spoke with a man holding a hammer. The radio erupted with Larry Resnick's voice. This is Larry Resnick coming on the air for a special broadcast. As you know, Joseph Sabota, the star quarterback for Matthias Jones's all-star football team, is being held in the state psychiatric hospital for the murder of Gina Quintel of Prince William. Only one thing wrong, ladies and gentlemen. One thing and one thing alone. Joseph Sabota didn't kill anybody because he was set up. Joe was set up by Larry Resnick, that's right. Coco, Coco, Jones yelled out the window. Coco's head turned to the left. He said a few more words to the guy with the hammer, and then he jogged over to Jones's window. What's up? Resnick, he's on the air. He just admitted he set up Joe. No shit. Coco moved around and opened the passenger door. He reached out and turned up the volume. I set him up so he'd go down, because he deserves to go down. I set him up because I should have been the starting quarterback. I should have had his girlfriend, and I should have been the success. So it looks as though I just have to take matters into my own hands. I can do that, with the very special guests I have today. Jones backed out of the parking lot. What the hell is he doing? asked Jones. I'm heading to Hamilton. This kid is wacko, Jonesy. My first guest is the world-renowned prestidigitation expert, C.S. Moody. Say hello to our audience, Clarence. 
Moody did not answer. Resnick screamed into the mic. Open your mouth! Um, C.S. Moody, he said in a low voice. Good, very good. Jones accelerated around the back roads toward Route 32. He's going to kill Moody. And ladies and gentlemen, the man responsible for bringing us all together. What does he mean, us? What's he talking about, Jonesy? asked Coco. Do enlighten us with your theories, Mr. Daniels. Daniels? I knew he'd be trouble. Mr. Daniels was kind enough to bring me over to C.S. Moody when he located him at the campus hostel. That stupid fool. What is it you said, Daniels? What is it you said? What you do in this world is no matter of consequence. The question is what you can make people believe you've done. There was a study in Scarlet, said Daniels. Upon hearing his voice, Jones shook his head. Of course, except you had the wrong man, Holmes. Well, reason told me he broke into that drawer and took the knife, said Daniels. Logic dictated he killed the hooker. What is this, the old-time radio hour? asked Coco, making a sickening expression. I wish we had gotten him back to Chickadee. Well, logic is only as good as your facts, Mr. Daniels, said Resnick. Well, he's right about that, said Jones, as he drove over the mountains. I think he's going to kill them all. How oh, you think, Jonesy? Now, my very, very special guest, one of the most beautiful women on campus. Oh, no, he's got Marlena Peterson. I am, of course, speaking of Marlena Peterson, who is here on WHMT to meet her maker. I have a better knife in my hands now. You bastard, yelled Jones as he picked up his cell phone. He quickly pushed the button for Strickland. George Strickland. George, did you hear? I'm on my way over there right now, Matthias. Wendell's coming down from the Fletcher estate, and I've already called Dom. He'll kill her, George. I'm aware of that, Matthias. Jones and Coco ran from the jeep toward the library. The campus radio station was located on the second floor. He passed Strickland's cruiser parked on the grass. Wendell waved them through the front door and up the side stairwell toward the radio station on the second floor. Strickland was already negotiating with Resnick through the door. Larry, the smart thing for you to do now for your life and for the life of Marlena and the others is to drop that knife and come out with your hands in the air. Jones could hear the broadcast through the speakers. I'm not coming out of here alive, Chief Strickland, and neither are they. Right now, Marlena is going to tell the world how much she loves me. The dour-faced Strickland shook his head. Larry, listen to me. Jones heard some mumbling, but Marlena said nothing. Tell them, tell them, tell everyone that you didn't love Joe, that you were very proud of me. Larry, this is Coach Jones. We are proud of the job you did last weekend. You showed courage and gumption. Now you need to do that again and walk out of there. Throw down the knife on the floor. I'm not doing anything for you, Coach. I hate you, Coach. In the background, Jones heard Arnie Dewis's grating voice. A cigarette hung out of the corner of his mouth. Hey, I hear they're going to call a SWAT team in and bring in the AK-47s and shoot this place up. How did he get in here? Coco, his face contorted and his fist tightened. Stomped up to Arnie. You got a problem here, P-Brain. Hey, 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 just trying to help, just trying to help. Coco drew his silver gun. Arnie's eyes opened wide behind his darkroom glasses and he scampered back down the stairs as Resnick's voice echoed throughout the hall. Tell them, Marlena, 
Tell them now or I'll kill you right now. He's got the knife at her throat, said Strickland in a low voice. Moody was seated with Daniels to the left of the microphone. Bresnik's red face brought his attributes as a killer to the surface. He moved the serrated knife back and forth over the skin of her neck. Marlena spoke in a soft voice. Yes, Larry. I love you, Larry. I never loved Joe, and I'm proud of you, Larry. Then she began to cry, but he kept the knife lodged against her windpipe. See, I told you all. I told you I could get Joe's girl. Then Daniels leaned toward the mic. Man always finds it hard to realize that he may have lost a woman's love, however badly he may have treated her. Holmes, the Musgrave ritual. Jones clenched his fist. That stupid idiot. Resnick waved the knife at Daniels and then put it against Marlena's cheek. What's the matter with that, Daniels? Is he crazy? I wish he'd just shut up, said Jones. This is stupid. Clarence Moody stood. Resnick, the knife at Marlena's throat, pulled her back in the rolling chair. Moody bowed as if he were in his magic act. The great Cardini will now quote the great Houdini. What the eyes see and the ears hear, the mind believes. Sit down, Clarence, sit down. He's creating a diversion is what he's doing, said Jones. No, not down, but up. I will levitate myself through the power of supernatural forces into the air. Somehow he had Resnick's attention as he actually moved upward. His sneakers dangled in midair from his green baggy pants. Resnick stood, knife in hand, and moved toward Moody. A single shot through the glass brought Resnick down. Jones turned, and Strickland kicked in the door as Coco stood with his silver gun pointed out, smoke still rising from the barrel. Jones followed Strickland inside. Resnick lay across the carpet. A small hole had punctured his temple, and the blue carpet was soaked with fresh blood. Daniel stood with his mouth open, and Moody was still in the air. Marlena ran to Jones. Coco yanked out the microphone. It's over, Marlena, it's over. He looked over his shoulder as Moody lifted his bare leg off the rear platform where he had supported his dangling sneaker. His other sneaker, the empty pant leg and sneaker, moved to the carpet. Then he placed the leg back in the baggy pants. Levitation is very simple, gentlemen. If you believe, then it's true. The Club Max Murder Epilogue A red and black banner hung from the auditorium rafters. The Fletcher Award of Distinguished Achievement. Hamilton Fletcher, his silver hair aglow in the auditorium lights, spoke with Lark on stage. A row of captain's chairs was lined up on either side of the wood podium stamped with the seal of Hamilton College. Nigel and the other professors contributed to the onstage chatter. Coco, wearing a white, open-collared shirt, sneered at the stage. Then he turned to Jones. What a bunch of muckamucks. What'd you bring me over here for, Jonesy? Well, Lark did save your life, Coco. Save my life? Lawson shouldn't even be on the road. Strickland smiled. Why limit it to the road? Well, I'll second that, George. For 90 days, Locke's been shopping around for an award, and now he's got one for running over Milk Carpus. I think the Fletchers got sick of his daily phone calls, said Strickland. Well, I ain't going up on that stage. Arnie Dewis leaned over the table, spilling beer near Jones. Arnie, watch it, will you? Didn't make the Fletcher Award, huh? I don't want the Fletcher Award, Arnie. Yeah, right. <laughs> 
he laughed, tipping the beer bottle up. He took several gulps, and then he spotted Coco across the table. Coco made a growling gesture, showing his teeth. Arnie choked on the beer and quickly backed away from the table. That two-by-four doers tried to bring lumber to the club for repairs. Nobody ordered it. He was ready to dump the load in the parking lot. What happened? asked Jones. <laughs> Wrath stopped the load, and then he threw doers back in the truck. Jones watched Arnie scamper out the back doors. Wrath told him he'd drive the truck into the river. Jones began laughing. What did he do? Oh, he got the hell out of there, is what he did. He's lucky that Wrath didn't bop him one. Hamilton Fletcher rapped on the microphone. Clarence Moody, cleared of charges after the Quintel murder, wore his black cape on stage. It's my great pleasure today to honor a man whose career has spanned 40 years here at Hamilton College. Locke squeezed Flo's hand and she straightened his pink tie. Clearly the situation at Club Max a few months back had reached a critical mass. Without the, shall we say, sudden entry of Coach Larson, who at the expense of his own vehicle single-handedly brought a violent criminal to his great reward. Clarence Moody appeared on the podium. He swung his cape into the air and then a silver tray containing the award trophy appeared in his hand. They should put a model of Lark's bomber up there, whispered Strickland. I don't think we'll see that machine again, George. Lark, I say with great pride that I am pleased to present you the Fletcher Award of Distinguished Achievement. Jones looked around the auditorium as the crowd roared their approval in rumbling applause. Then they stood. Jones spotted Travis with Joe Sabota and Marlena across the way. Wow, looks like Joe is doing okay. It wasn't for Travis. Travis is personally responsible for keeping Joe's head above water. Joe was ready to end it all. Joe gave him the thumbs up sign. Coco hit his arm. Don't these people realize that Lawson crashed that crate of his through my wall? You don't understand, Coco. It doesn't matter what Lark does. They love him. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Jones swatted away something on his wrist. He felt it again, but when he turned, Daniel stood motionless. He mumbled something without moving his lips as Lark spoke up on stage. Well, thank you, Hamilton. Thank you. And dear friends. What did you say, Daniels? I said I made an ass out of myself, Jones, and I'm sorry. Jones shook his hand. Well, that's magnanimous of you. Well, I could have gotten people killed because of my faulty reasoning. Well, as I always say, Daniels, all's well that ends well. You and Shakespeare, I'm sorry. Shouldn't be so arrogant. Jones looked back to Lark. Reminds me of the 50s when we cooked our pasta and had our spaghetti suppers. And our boys needed that extra energy. We added a little lumbercrits terrace trees. What the hell is that? asked Jones. Oh, dear God, said Daniels. Well, it's probably some illegal drug. What's the matter, Daniels? I'm buttoning my lips, he added. Boys like Snooky McKenzie, Kibbles Nelson, Wee Willie Williams. Yeah, all the greats, said Jones. It was third and ten, or was it fourth and fifteen? Get me out of here, Jonesy. I'm not going to sit here listening to this chugglehead. The boys marched all the way down the field four times. They finally scored with five seconds left. If Snooky didn't smack that referee, we would have gotten skunked. Coco stood, Jonesy. 
The mail is coming, Coco. Come on, I need a cigarette. Reminds me when I was storming the cliffs in Hoboken during D-Day. Hoboken? Yeah, those Germans must have really been dug in in Hoboken, said Jones. George, what happened to Kip? Well, I'm sorry to say that he was reinstated by Dom, and Herbert did some finagling. He's back on the force. Well, so much for Lady Justice balancing the scales. Clarence Moody moved from behind the curtain. He raised his cape upward. Lark's speech suddenly stopped as if someone had turned him off. With a cloud of smoke, Moody removed the cape and Lark was gone. Well, I need to learn this trick, said Jones. Coco applauded. Yeah, send the hat around for that kid shutting up that blowhard Larson. What do you think of that, Daniels? Daniels pushed his lips apart. I used all the techniques that Holmes used and I fell short. No, no, the magic. One of the cheerleaders escorted Mrs. O'Toole wearing a plaid skirt and white sweater to the table. Oh, dear God. But Daniels, you got the girl. What would Holmes say? Daniels nodded several times before he spoke. Mediocrity knows nothing higher than itself, but talent instantly recognizes genius. Holmes, the valley of fear. Jones thought he heard Bucky Driscoll's voice. When he turned... He saw Bucky in his brown security uniform holding the sides of an adjacent table's linen cloth. Yeah, anyone can do magic. Once you know all that inside info. He isn't going to do what I think he's going to do, is he? asked Strickland. I do believe he is, George, said Jones as he waved at Muriel, tanned and blonde at the entrance. Bucky yanked the tablecloth and the candle, the flowers, and three hot plates went flying across the room as Lark kept pontificating. Coco pushed back the chair and staggered to his feet. Oh, whoopsie! <laughs> whoopsie! The waiter scrambled to pick up the dishes. He backed toward Jones's table. Are you a magician, young man? asked Mrs. O'Toole. Huh? Who, me? He is no magician, madam, said Daniel, shaking his head. Moody waved his cape and Lark was again behind the podium. Bucky sat next to Mrs. O'Toole. He put his hand next to his mouth and leaned toward her. Well, I can do card tricks. Really? Yeah, I have ESP. What a gift. Yeah, what a gift, said Coco from behind. Bucky's eyes opened wide as he turned. Hey, I'm just trying to get some grub. Get lost, Driscoll, said Coco as he moved his thumb. I don't eat with rodents. Muriel motioned him over to the rear table. <laughs> well, I gotta go, he said, tipping his hat to Mrs. O'Toole. That man is a living, breathing disaster said Coco, tapping his fingers. The chicken-hearted brigade of 64. Now there was a team with courage. With Lass and his coach, they'd need courage. Look, Jonesy, I gotta get out of here. I'm ready to go myself. He checked his watch. I have to be at the station in 45 minutes. Four young men who marched into history, said Lark. 1964, said Jones. Did they have a winning record? Who the hell cares, Jonesy? Asked Coco as he stood. He turned toward Daniels. Hey, Sherlock, what was the stuff that Lawson put in the food for the team? Steroids? Lark didn't know what it was, said Strickland. Well, I can assure you that I know what it is, and it's disgusting. Where did you say you were going, Jonesy? The train station. What do you mean, train? Train to where? Jones paused. Penn Station. I think it's time I saw New York City. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Very good, Jonesy. Very good. 
Mr. Stefani, do you want the answer to your question? asked Daniels. Yeah, was this stuff illegal? Yes, Daniels. Pray tell, what was it that Lark put in that pasta? Well, the substance is not banned as far as I know. Lumbricus terrestris is also known as the common earthworm. Jones's face soured and he slowly panned toward Lark. Lark's voice boomed out. A legendary team and a legendary year. Yeah, a legendary coach. A legendary team and a legendary year. Hope you like the Club Max murder. Envy and greed can only lead to bad things. Next time, we'll be going on quite the trip. In a wild time travel novel, Mark McKenna and the crew of Time Portal Alpha board a vehicle which has only had simulated journeys back in time. The maniacal Dr. Nico Morrow, a man of both genius and evil, has broken the time barrier to radically alter the current timeline. Nico wishes to diminish the United States of America into a minor world power, seething in poverty and unable to economically take care of its own people. A point in time exists in the early 20th century where Nico altered the timeline and prevented the construction of the Los Angeles Aqueduct Project, which brought economic growth to America in the 20th century. McKenna is confronted by Nico with unforeseen circumstances and a surprise ending. This is Robert P. Fitton. I'm leaving Hamilton, New Hampshire for the Los Angeles of the future. That's just a connecting flight. The real flight will bring the listener back to the Los Angeles of the early 20th century and the Los Angeles aqueduct. There it is. Take it. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz.pizzazz.com.